please leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Thank you. us how little we know and and as a result it's just there's no reason for humility or, or for arrogance there's we should be humble about what we think we know because it's a tiny part of what there is to know and it's probably wrong anyway <laughs> <laughs> you know so that's good that's actually a good thing because it reminds us that there's a lot to learn Almost everything is left to learn. And to me, that's not depressing, that's exciting. There's nothing in it. I, I never said anything bad about her or Terrence. You know, I said things about him that might be honest, that were not, you know, just this mindless praise. That was not my role. I mean, I was his little brother. I know where all the bodies are buried, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I loved him. And despite all that, I loved him. This is the final segment of my three-part series with Dennis McKenna. In this one, Dennis talks about breaking some family ties because of the publication of his book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. In this interview, he sounds a little raw, resentful, and it's one-sided by nature. So please do not be too judgmental. Families are complicated, and Dennis McKenna says that when life becomes more and more complex, consciousness emerges from that neural network, and, well, consciousness sure as shit isn't simple, it's like families, complicated. But don't worry, that's not all we talk about. We still talk about drugs and society and all that other interesting stuff, and he has a lot of interesting and insightful things to be said about that. Okay. Here is the theme song. And Joey Peters was interviewing Dennis uh, with me. So thank you, Joey. Here's the theme song. see psychedelics in you know in the US like 30 years from now. Well <laughs> apart from the fact that there probably won't be a US 30 years <laughs> from now. <laughs> but putting all that aside, I think if it if it uh, evolves in in a good way, as we succeed in integrating these things into society in a good way, that's not entirely a clinical, biomedical way. What I would like to see is something like you're, you can already see in South America, 
with these retreat centers and that sort of thing, except I'd mm. like to see a more regulated, maybe even standardized kind of thing. I'd like to see every community has like a center or a place that people could go to have these experiences. And they would not look like a clinic. It would look like a spa. And yeah. you could actually go there and take the whole family, you know, <laughs> and you could have massages and saunas and maybe take a sw- and take take psilocybin together mm-hmm. under controlled circumstances with an experienced facilitator shaman guide whatever facilitator is a good kind of neutral term and really give people an opportunity to have these experiences in a you know, and especially for families and, and close-knit mm-hmm. people. And I think it would tremendously improve human relations and so on. I mean, the interesting thing, you know, about some of these clinical studies done with psilocybin in terminal patients, you know, those people get tremendous insights about their existential situation uh, and the fact that they're dying and, and they often come away with this perception that, well, I was terrified of, with death, of death, you know, but what I, what I learned with the psilocybin is the lesson was, yeah, you're dying. You're going to die one of these days, but you're alive right now. Think about that. Appreciate that you're alive now. Mm. And I think, and because when a person's in a terminal state, it affects the full family, either, you know, either, you know, they're devastated that they're dying, or maybe they don't like the person, and maybe they're saying, well, it's about time that bastard checked (laughs) out, you know. But how good could it be, how healing could it be if a whole family could take the psilocybin, not just the person with the terminal illness, if you could create optimal situations because they give you the the ability to say things to your loved ones that you might have a hard time saying mm. normally. And I think that could be tremendously healing on, in lots of ways. I come from the framework of, I, of drugs kind of being scary for me because I used to drink and then I had to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of drugs as just like buttons you can push and things happen. W- what do you think uh, people have to do outside of this? Because I think a lot of people, when they um, think about psychedelics, they think about them as just another thing they can consume. Um, yeah. are, are, are you a practitioner of uh, a, a meditation practice or... Anything else like that? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, to some extent, I I don't meditate regularly, but I certainly would advocate it. You know, I think it's important to. You know, you can't take a trip every day. You know, <laughs> and, I mean, and you wouldn't want to because after a while, you know, the, these these full-on psychedelic experiences are almost by definition they take place in a in a you know you can use the word sacred, which has all sorts of common connotations, but at least a, a special place and time that's not your ordinary place and time. You're setting aside. If you do them right, I think it's important to have 
pay a lot of attention to set and setting. I I got a few more questions if you'll indulge me. Um, okay. <laughs> well, you guys don't ask the easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> One thing is, you know, so I I've had like a few, you know, a number of experiences. It's been a while. I've never had the experience where I'm on a psychedelic and I'm completely somewhere else. Like I always know I'm here, right? And Mm-hmm. Things look distorted, but you were telling me earlier that you had kind of an experience like that. It, it ties into the set and setting. I was hungover in my last days of drinking, and I was really depressed <laughs> and decided mm-hmm. to do uh, mushrooms, and it launched me. I had a very, very intense um, cosmic experience. So with that, like, um, we always heard from our parents and stuff like, don't be the kid that does LSD because you'll jump out of that window thinking you can fly. Um, right. Is well, there but, any truth to that? <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's, I've never. This had is that this is a failure of of setting. Yeah. You know, a failure to control the setting. You know, maybe you don't want to take LSD on the roof of the tallest building in Manhattan. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe that's not the optimal place, you know. And so that's, you know, uh, there is really nothing to that. I mean, in, in the sense that, yeah, you can get confused, you can get scared. But if you've, if you prepared yourself properly set and setting, and you go into it with the mindset that, you know, you, you have to be able to find your center, you know, and cleave to that, return to that, which can often just be accomplished by breathing, focusing on your breathing. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. That centers you and brings you, because there's a core to your being, I think, in these experiences. There's a core to your being that is never stoned. Mm. You know, there's a part of you that is never stoned. Mm. And in my own experience, you know, (laughs) there's always, I mean, it may be just a tiny part of you, but even in the most transcendent, transformative, alien, bizarre experience I've I've ever had, there's always some, except the experiment at La Chimera, which is when, you know, that mechanism failed. But I think that, uh, you know, there's always a part of you that is sort of standing apart from this as though watching it from the outside and monitoring the situation. Okay. Is, I, does that reflect what you have experienced or in my yeah actually the one time i started to have a bad trip i went that's what my friend he just said just don't try to control it don't try and control and it. so then i did that and then i had a great trip yeah <laughs> great experience yeah though. and and the, the 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 core of the self that is never stone is not necessarily trying to control it Maybe just observe it. Just some kind of a 
you know, a still little tiny voice that says, you're still here you're still okay. You're yeah. not in any danger. You know, you're all right. <laughs> you know, or words to that effect, something to that effect. You know, you're not having a heart attack. You're not having a stroke. You're not, you know, in any physiological danger. Or, and I guess like if there's other like bad experiences I've had within, it's the, well, like this paranoia that, uh oh, I'm going to be perma tripping now for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. 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 That is, that often comes up. But then you have to you have to have the presence of mind to remind yourself that that's not going to happen. You yeah. know that you're you've deliberately disabled this default mode network that keeps you on track and in this consensus reality. All you have to do is remember that it's going to be over in a few hours, and that that it's going to fall back together because the brain. The brain mind system tends to equilibrium, you know, and and so this this disruptive influence will disrupt it temporarily, but when that's as it goes away, it'll fall back together. And not only will it fall back together, it'll fall back together better than it was before. You know, it's like it's literally like rebooting your hard drive, I think. It's a lot like that. Everything goes down. You know, and then as it begins to come back up, eventually the green light comes back on and you're up and running again. You know, in very rare instances, you, uh, I wouldn't say you don't come back, but there are, there's this thing called uh, persist, what is it called? Uh, persistent hallucinogen perceptual disorder. Right. Where you can continue to have flashes and and that sort of thing which some people would actually say cool man (laughs) i can tap into this any time uh but but generally those kinds of things tend to fade even when that happens it tends to fade after a while now you can get all worried about it and say well maybe i'm totally losing it maybe you are but probably you're not Everybody has like a different, there's a different time frame to, you know, completely get reintegrated. Mm -hmm. I mean, with ayahuasca, you see this quite a lot. Sometimes, you know, usually if you take, have you had experience with ayahuasca? No, I haven't. Usually people take it six, seven hours. Most people are pretty much back to baseline, but it's not unusual that people will be well into it 12 hours later, sometimes Mm. 24 hours later, you know, and, but eventually they come out of it, you know, and so the, the tendency to recover that equilibrium is very strong. It's, it's hard to permanently disable it. Now, you know, there are exceptions to that. And this is a hard, you know, if, if you have a genetic proclivity to schizophrenia or you're prone to schizophrenia, probably you shouldn't be taking psychedelics. And it's not always clear that you do. You may not know that you do. Um, And then, you know, then you're at risk for it. But this, this is again why, you know, with with these things, if you're not experienced with any of these things, it's always better to start with a low dose and work up 
work up to the heroic doses so that you get used to these altered states and you have you have an idea how you're how it sits with you you know yeah caution is always the better part of valor i think so you're gonna leave minnesota right I am going to leave Minnesota. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> why? Yeah. Well, it's complex. I mean, I don't know. Why would I, you uh, I mean, why would I want to leave a country that's uh, being uh, destroyed by, a, a, you know, a, a guy who has the temperament of a petulant six-year-old and <laughs> the the smarts of a rotting turnip. Um, I can't imagine any reason why I'd want, you know, some kind of, you know, t- would-be tin pot dictator. <laughs> so it's partly that. I just don't okay. want to participate in the American experiment, experiment anymore. And then the other reason, more personal reason, is I have long ties with Canada. My wife's Canadian. I got my degree there. My daughter's already there. And I have a lot of friends there, and uh, we're leaving because we can. Mm. Uh, is is Minnesota anything like Canada? It's a lot like Canada. Sometimes actually. we get compared a lot. Yeah, I've always wondered that. It's a it's a lot like Canada. It's a lot like I mean, the people are a lot like Canadians. Yeah. you know, the people are nice, right? <laughs> Nicer than a lot of places, and and I think more open minded, more, you know. Yeah, Minnesota's Minnesota's not a bad place at all. I wish the winters were a little yeah. different. But that that comes with the territory. That's just that's just I don't think it's it's not bad. <laughs> so there's a legend out there. Maybe you can talk if this is true or not that Terrence, your brother, at one point had a bad trip and stopped taking mushrooms after that or stopped using hallucinogens. That's a legend. Now, is that true? Yeah, there is some some element of truth to that. I don't think he completely stopped, but there was a point where he had some experiences that really set him back on his heels in a kind of an existential way, and uh, and he stopped taking. But I th- I think that was part and parcel of of you know, a whole personal sort of crisis he was going through at that time. I don't really want to talk about it. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> fine. And I just finished your book, and I think you yeah, touched on a lot of that in your book, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, Did you see anything in the book that would justify my sister-in-law going so ballistic and and deciding that i was dead to her i mean was there anything in there that would no i mean that's kind of surprising to hear yeah Um, i'm pretty surprised about it too yeah like you said family (laughs) dynamics and there are just things that can tick people off that you don't realize and relationships and that a lot of times i think you can't say the word family without putting dysfunctional in front (laughs) of it you know and i think every family has these issues you know Hmm. and as some very wise person counseled me it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna write a memoir make sure that the first sentence is 
they're all dead now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you go from there, you know. <laughs> of course, I'm not going to outlive these people because my nephew and my niece are also not happy with me. But hmm. Well, I mean, it's hard when when you speak. You wrote a memoir. They didn't get to write memoirs that got read as well. The act of writing it, um, you know, excludes people from representing themselves just by the very nature of it. I mean, I thought a lot Why of Why is that so? I mean, I in in the conversation that we were having, I was like, I wrote my memoir. This is my story. Yeah. You're welcome to write your story. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything about it. You can write your own damn story. It's not my problem. Yeah. You know. Well, they, it, it's they, hard to understand that, you know. Yeah. They never did. So that's their choice. They could have written their story. Uh-huh. It's not the same as my story. What, what would you think they would say if they heard your response to that right now? Would they say like... What I just said? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did more or less say that to them you know, at the time. And, you know, I got no response, you know. I mean, I mean... Yeah, I got no real response, but that is in fact true. I mean, I don't see, I don't see that my writing a memoir about my life and and the book is about me. It's not about Terrence. It is my life with mm-hmm. Terrence McKenna. That's built into the title. So I'm telling my story. Why can't they tell their story? You know, it's not mine. They choose. I mean, if they feel excluded or unable to write their story because I wrote a story this is their problem not mine Mm -hmm. that's how I feel about it Did you used to lead retreats to Hawaii? Or did I you did, yeah. Because I think I knew somebody that did that. Yeah. One of your students. For uh, years, we used to teach a, a course in Hawaii every January, January intercession called uh, Plants and Human Affairs. And I taught that with Kat Harrison, who was my sister-in-law, who is my sister-in-law, I guess. We did that for a while until... Uh, we I think we started that in like 2005, and we continued to 2012. And then I wrote my book, and then she decided that she hates me. So now we don't do that work anymore, unfortunately. Um. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what did What did you um? So you stopped teaching about a year ago. You said. Uh, just about a year ago. Yeah. Why did you stop? Too many other things going on. Um, I'm doing a lot of traveling and also the compensation to effort ratio was not making any sense. Adjunct professors don't get paid very much. And, and I like, I put a lot of time into my courses and, and also when they went online, that in some ways that took a lot of the fun out of it. Cause then you often don't even ever meet your students actually. Mm. 
and I like to meet my students. I like that personal connection, you know. I enjoy teaching online, too, because I could do it from anywhere, but um, it wasn't as much fun. When you said she hates you, um, was that because of the content of the book that you were working on, or is it personal reasons? I think it's pretty complex. Um, but yeah, in part because of the content of the book. The but autobiography? Yeah. You know, my, my memoir, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, there were some things in it that she was not happy about. And I actually changed most of those things or either got them, took them out or toned it down. I don't think it impacted the book that much. But, you know, families are bizarre. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't, family dynamics are also bizarre. And if you're going to write a memoir, you know, you're you're going to get somebody mad. Yeah. You know, if you're going to write a personal memoir, somebody is not going to be happy. So, so, so be it, you know. <laughs> But again, like if you've read the memoir, you can see there's 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 nothing in it. I, I never said anything bad about her or Terrence. You know, I said things about him that might be honest, that were not, you know, just this mindless praise. That, that was not my role. I mean, I was his little brother. I know where all the bodies are buried, you know? <laughs> and I loved him. And... Despite all that, I loved him. And people, the ones I've talked to that have read the book that, that give me feedback say it really comes through. You know, your book is honest, but it's loving and yeah. tender. And I don't want it to be any other way. It was never intended to be a dissection of Terrence and all his faults, you know, because we all have faults and... Nobody's perfect. I mean, it seemed like that book was kind of your big tribute to him and how he's impacted your life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I, I guess it, like the worst stuff you had to say were the stuff early on when you were kids and he was the big brother. Like, yeah, <laughs> That's pretty typical though, right? You know? Yeah, and I we got over that. I didn't resent. I mean, I resented at the time. I, you know. I really resented it, but you grow out of this stuff, and siblings always have this rivalry going on. He was particularly creative at that, but that's what <laughs> you'd expect, you know. So we we overcame all that early on, and and realized that we were actually kindred spirits, you know, and became colleagues as well as friends, as well as brothers, you know, and. Uh, do you still feel like a little brother? Like I, I have three older brothers and I feel like it's a big part of my identity. Like how I see when I enter a room, I feel like the little brother of the room. Well, he's not around anymore. So I sort of don't get that so much mm -hmm. now, you know, I mean, I did for a long time, but I don't really get that anymore. I'm the only one standing. I'm the last one standing, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there were only two of us. But then my parents, my mom died in 1970, you know, my father died in 1997. 
So they've been gone for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm, Terrence was the last. And You're the last. That was, I am the last. <laughs> I am the last. Yeah. But now I'm an orphan. Mm. Yeah. Um, I thought this is from your book, um, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Did I say that right? I'm yeah. bad with recall. And I just think it's, it shows how you're a good writer and you're far out there and it's crazy um, and it's lucid. <laughs> and I just think it, it's, it's, this is a good excerpt of what you were, um, were trying to will into existence um, down in Panama for during the experiment at La Choera. Wait, how do you say yeah. it? La Chorera. Did I get that right? Was it Panama? Hmm? Was it Panama? No, Colombia. Colombia. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know. Okay. Um, the point was that this shamanic phlegm and the violet psychofluid that Terence and his consort exuded in Kathmandu seemed similar. In the alchemical and magical traditions, these objects can be solid like crystal balls, but they can also take liquid form, as in water or mercury. The unifying concept was that these things were actually a blend of both matter and mind. They were substances, to be sure, but ones in which the future and distant places could be seen. In which anything imaginable, even language itself, literally became visible. I just think that kind of has a lot of um, of your career and um, worldview in it, and I thought it would be nice to end on that. Good place to end it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, well, Joey, thank you um, for coming on and um, showing me, um, bringing me onto some of the, the world of all this stuff. I've been spent a fun week kind of researching. Um, Joey Peters, journalist of the Twin Cities, and thank you, Dennis McKenna, for um, giving us your time and um, experience and wisdom. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming over. Yeah, thanks for having Great us. Great interview. I hope you can clean it up so it <laughs> makes more sense sometimes. But we covered a lot of territory. So thank, thank yeah. both of you. It's been fun. We're going to do it. It's too late now to back out. When do you leave? When we get this house sold, then we'll have a better idea when we can leave. Okay. Yep. So, um, c- contact me at youreulogymail.com if you have an offer. For okay. <laughs> making this house. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let uh, us know. We're, we're, yeah. Yep. Well, thank you for listening. This has been Your Eulogy. Thank you to my guests. Uh, again, that email is Your Eulogy Mail. Your Eulogy Mail at Gmail. I never noticed it's Your Eulogy Mail. Sounds. The address is Your Eulogy mail at gmail (laughs) that's a dumb um, accidental tongue twister thank you for listening and thank you to my guests again thank you thank you gentlemen if you didn't notice um, Dennis McKinnon is moving to Canada so you can buy his house if you want to live in his house in St. Paul he also has a cat that they don't want to bring with called Mr. De Niro. Um, I was going to foster it, but he doesn't play well with other cats or other cats stress him out. So you can, you can live in Dennis McKenna's house and have his cat, Mr. De Niro, if you like.
This episode was produced and edited by me, Matthew Schneeman. The music is The Dregs, written by Abigail Slawick and recorded by me. Thank you for listening. <laughs>